0: everybody and welcome to the american shoreline podcast my name is peter Ravella. i'm the co-host of this show and this is tyler buckingham the other co-host we are at the university of texas bureau of economic geology back for our second interview today with the very special guest dr catherine romanack who is the well catherine tell us i will let you explain what your title and position is
1: Okay, well, thank you both so much. I'm really excited to be here with you um, to talk about carbon capture and storage, one of my favorite subjects. Um, Yes, my name is Catherine Romanak. I am a research scientist at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, and my expertise is I am a geochemist, and I develop environmental monitoring plans for geologic CO2 storage sites.
0: Wow. Now that's, this, y'all, I tell you, this is going to be
2: more exciting than you think. (laughs) Well, of course, this is going to be a major uh, issue coming down the pike for um, coastal communities for a number of reasons. One is that uh, many of the the storage sites that have been identified are along the shore ancient seabeds from years gone by. Uh, Maybe the dinosaurs were kicking it at an ancient beach and uh, those those are now uh, Possibly going to be good sites for storage Uh, So we're gonna have an interesting conversation today about all about this and about uh, some of the risk mitigation that's going on Uh, Catherine is an expert in how Uh, These projects can be done safely, hopefully, and we're going to talk about the risks and what you're working on to to figure all that out. And we've got a whole slate figured out. But before we get into the show, Peter, let's uh, have a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Yes, uh, as usual, uh, we do have to stop and thank our sponsors uh, because they help get this thing uh, off the ground and keep it going. Uh, I'd like to thank Dune Doctors, one of our longtime sponsors, uh, Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, Natural Dune Restoration Company, uh, Marsh Restoration, great folks over
2: there. Find them at DoonDoctors.com. And, of course, Coastal Engineering Consultants out of Naples, Florida, headed by Michael Poff, an excellent, top-notch coastal engineering company. And they have the best coastal engineering website in the world because it is CoastalEngineering.com. And LJA Engineering, another fine
0: coastal engineering firm with their headquarters of their coastal division here in Austin, Texas, headed by Bill Worsham, our good friend find them at lja.com
2: all right Catherine. well uh, let's just get right into it uh, let's start about you introduce uh, your background how you came to be working on carbon capture
1: okay well that's a bit of a story in and of itself um, i was actually working in volcanology i was becoming a volcano expert and in Hawaii, as,
2: <laughs> I, as I, I believe.
1: Hawaii is one of those places you can go to study volcanoes for sure. Um, and I was, uh, I was getting my master's degree in, in, in volcanology, and I went to work at the Smithsonian Institution's Global Volcanism Program and just about that time i realized that i wanted to be the one on top of the volcano not the one in the office taking the reports about the volcano so i decided um... to go out and get a phd in volcanology but just about that time three of my colleagues were killed in two separate volcanic eruptions wow. and i was about to i was thinking about getting married and starting a family and i thought i don't know if it's really fair to my future children for them to have a mom off on an erupting volcano because it's actually quite dangerous wow. so i actually switched um my uh expertise and into um geochemistry and i had a project out in west texas where we were um looking at the soil gas the gases in the shallow sediments around this playa lake and trying to understand if some of the contaminants in these lakes were being um bioremediated and so i i got an expertise in um in doing this geochemistry of the near surface environment but during my phd i had two children and i decided to just be doctor mom and just uh put my energy into the the children. And then 10 10 years later, my husband said, why don't you get back into geology? The kids are older. You love it. And so I started to um, ask around, and I called the Bureau of Economic Geology, and they said, oh, my gosh, we, we know what your expertise is because we've worked with you during your PhD, and we'd love for you to come and work on this thing called carbon capture and storage. So I came back. I'd never heard of it, and here I was working on something that my expertise could pertain to but something that i really didn't know what it was
0: that is an incredible story and like many things perfect timing right came back at the right time on the right issue and now we're heading into the new horizon of climate change response we're talking about getting the carbon out of the air and into the ground i understand tell us what carbon capture and sequestration is
1: okay well first of all it's a very important mitigation technology and that's one thing i want to really highlight this is and we'll talk about that probably during during our time together but um, it's a way of mitigating global climate change by capturing co2 out of large point source industrial sources Capturing that, so in other words, instead of letting um, the CO2 go out of the flue gas, out of the stack, we capture it, we compress it into a liquid, and then we inject it into a deep geological formation for long-term storage. Wow.
0: And once it's down there, uh, the whole point is that it doesn't come back up, and I think that's part of the work at, here we are at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, which is the expert geologist and geochemists and I just love this place. Uh, Tell us about the BEG team. How many people are involved in trying to figure this out and where do you fit into that?
1: Yeah, so at the BEG, I I believe there's something around 150 researchers, and we're just a smaller unit within the BEG called the Gulf Coast Carbon Center. And the principal investigator and leader of the Gulf Coast Carbon Center is Susan Havorka, who you spoke with.
2: Familiar to our audience. We love her.
1: We love her, too. She's amazing. She's been in CCS research probably so for a very long time. She is someone that did one of the very first— Projects in the United States, and she has been a real leader in um, creating the CCS program in the United States. Actually, so she's she's a big deal, and she really has been the the person that has uh, created this this wave of of science here at the BEG. So um, we have students, probably about ten students and postdocs. We have around ten or eleven um, principal researchers. Wow. And we have quite a multidisciplinary team. We cover every aspect except capture. um, But what we do is we do the storage and the monitoring. So we are experts in monitoring these geologic storage sites. And we've been working on it now for over 20 years.
2: So I think this is a really important thing because uh, obviously... um I think every every member of our audience on every show we've ever done, the subject of climate change has come up. It's it's on the fore of uh, coastal communities in the, in the, on their minds. Uh, it's it's hugely important in our planning for the future. Uh, sea level rise is universally now being um, included in our uh, our long term plans of how to manage our shorelines. So. Uh, the, and, of course, the principal cause of this is that we've taken carbon out of uh, the planet, out of the Earth part of the planet, and put it into the atmosphere part of the planet. And uh, we've increased the temperature, and, of course, that's creating all sorts of chain reactions. And uh, this is really interesting because, of course, there's a positive. This is something we can do. You've said it's a very important technology, but... The minute we hear that, I could tell you there's a little voice in my head that's like, uh oh, this is not this is an unnatural thing that we're doing here. And you have spent a long time. You I know you're you're a very serious professional. What is your confidence level in our ability to to really hold this stuff down there and monitor it and get done what you want to get done here?
1: Well, my confidence level is huge, okay? And I think it's really, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I think for a lot of people, you know, first of all, just thinking about geology because the scale of geology is so different than what we're used to on, a, on our everyday, you know, life-living level. I mean, geology is, is something that the scale is difficult for people to understand. So what you have to realize is that we have been do engineering the subsurface For 100 years, okay? So, whereas it seems like some complex, nebulous thing to be putting things underground, what people need to realize is actually it's not that complex. It's actually quite easy. And as geologists, we know how the first way that we mitigate risk is we choose the right site. So, we understand that oil and gas has been trapped um, for billions of years under the ground. And so, we know that. The way that that happens is in subsurface environments where there is porous rock overlain by rock that is not porous. And so there's a seal, there's a natural seal. And so if we know how to first of all, characterize a site, choose the right site, it's quite easy to get the CO2 down there. And actually, we're just putting it back where we got it. So it's not that complex and difficult in reality is quite easy for us to do
0: and the technology involved in this is is we're, we're talking about injecting a, a liquefied gas into the subsurface we're talking about a drilling rig here right and we're going to we're going to go down we're going to enter this cavern or this cell or this formation and we're going to pump it in there and it's going to stay in there i think dr havorka kind of walked us through that whole that whole process So in the team, I'm interested in, you said it's a very multidisciplinary team. Talk to us about what those disciplines are. And I'm just curious as how, when you come in the room, you're the monitoring, you're the what could go wrong person. I just really am interested in how you connect. And when you say to them, look, that maybe not the way we want to do that. I mean, tell us about the team, the <laughs> disciplines, and how did you fit into that team?
1: Okay, sure thing. So we have, um, we have modelers, we have subsurface reservoir engineers, we have wow. people that are um, understand the economics of CCS, um, and uh, so we have really the expertise all the way from the very, very deep subsurface all the way up to the shallow subsurface so we're actually you know taking care of every single level of of that and um and so what we've been involved in is is really developing how can we understand what the characteristics of a good site are how do we choose those sites Um, once we choose the site how do we monitor that? So first of all, what we do is we do site characterization. Then we do a risk assessment. So we want to see, okay, are there any risks to this site that we need to mitigate or we need to keep a close eye on?
0: Okay, let me ask you a question right there because I think what I'm assuming it would be the kind of risk that you would be interested in would certainly involve water, uh, formation, stability, uh, geotectonic kind of stuff. I mean, tell us when you're looking at a site— You're trying to make sure it's not overly risky. What are the factors?
1: Well, the factors are faults. Mm -hmm. And old wells, actually, old historic oil and gas wells are are the biggest risks. Because what they do is they puncture through the geologic seal. And so we want to make sure that those wells are, you know, the integrity of those wells are good and that they're not going to create a pathway. Right. And And then there's an induced seismicity is another Um, risk that we wanna take care of
2: that's an interesting word what's induced seismicity oh sorry
1: sorry about that yeah is that like an earthquake that we create
2: is that like the fracking quakes kind of thing
1: okay now I'm not going to no 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 no
2: is that a uh, is that a myth that I just
1: fracking and CCS are completely different and this what this does is this actually thank you for this you have just illustrated Mm -hmm. my point about the fact that geology we're here to learn we're here to learn geology is inaccessible to a lot of people because of the scales and and you can't see it and and so fracking and ccs get you know they get looped into the same thing and they're completely different okay but but let's go back to induced seismicity so yes induced seismicity is when you put so rocks and this is not my area of expertise but um, rocks have pressures over which these pressures will cause them to fracture Mm. so But we as geologists know how to understand what that pressure is, and we know how to engineer the injection so that it does not go over that pressure, okay? But when you put things in the subsurface, sometimes you can create very small— it's called micro-seismicity. And because our instrumentation is so good and we can now pick up such, uh, you know, small signals, we're actually using these signals— in part of our research i mean they give us information on the rocks and on the reservoir hmm. but these are the these are the risks that we are addressing so basically leakage to the surface or small amounts of seismicity but the other thing i want to bring up real, real quickly is that s- CO2 is not the only thing that we want to inject into the subsurface. I mean, brine, which is uh, salty water, is injected into the subsurface all the time. There are um, natural gas storage um, sites where natural gas is injected into the subsurface. So I don't want the viewers to think that this is just something that's so new and so out of range of, of our experience because we do We actually do this all the time
2: totally and and I, I think that 's important to understand that this is an emerging technology sure in in the sense that we are trying to take uh co2 that would have otherwise gone into the atmosphere and put it down there for the purpose i guess of combating climate change or you know and not you know uh storing natural gas to be used utilized later for burning or whatever the case may be but let's zoom out a little bit okay we're going to take this liquefied co2 and put it down there and i know that it's a good site and we've got we're monitoring it but it's an engineering thing. Yeah, right. If it comes out, I mean, it. it I think that, is it, uh, first of all, I would say it's fair to say that there will be a failure. If this goes big time, it will happen. That's just the nature of, of engineering. Sure. And if it comes out, like, what are the consequences of that? Are we, is it, is it terrible? <laughs> right.
1: So that's a really good question that we need to ask. And you're right. I mean, humans are, you know, we're not flawless and sometimes things happen like this. So but I would say that if we never took any risk at all, we would, we would never move forward and, in, in, you know, we would never totally. evolve. So, but, um, but if you look at carbon dioxide, so the real risk, honestly, carbon dioxide is not toxic, it's not explosive, you know, none of those things. The real risk is that it's denser than air. So if CO2 comes out and we don't know about it, and if we give it a chance to uh, kind of percolate and come out slowly, then it can displace oxygen, and it so it can cause exf- asphyxiation. Sorry, I can't say mm-hmm. that. Um, so that's really the main risk. Um, the other risk that we've looked into and that we feel very good about is a lot of people have said, what happens if it gets into the groundwater? Like, what happens if it comes up and gets into our groundwater? And we've, um, scientifically and technically, we've thrown so many different angles at this to try to understand, okay, what would happen? And we're feeling very confident that the that these, these drinking water aquifers would not be impacted um, in a way that would be significant. I think um, brine entering a, a groundwater aquifer is way more difficult than CO2.
2: But I mean, what if, for example, this, it were to bubble up under the ocean? I mean... Would that be... Has that been thought of? I mean, I'm thinking about our coastal communities here. These sites are a few miles offshore, um, a couple miles down, I understand, from our conversation with Sue. Um, And what strikes me is that, boy, what if what if they were to come up under the ocean like a, an oil leak uh, yeah. type of deal?
1: That's really good. So there's a lot of work being done on that. And our expertise is mostly in the terrestrial application of CCS, but we are moving into the offshore area and we are um, gathering expertise in that as well. And we are working um, also on a project in Japan, which is offshore. So we're learning from our Japanese colleagues. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at the impact of atmospheric CO2 on the oceans. A localized leak of CO2 is nothing compared to the great surface area of the oceans, which are now just sucking up the carbon dioxide. So, I mean, for the oceans, I think, wow, it is even more important that we do this technology. There has been scientific studies on what happens to the local area of leakage if it were to happen. And I say that because when leakage happens, what we think is when leakage happens, it will be extremely localized. And what they found is most of the sea creatures, they just move away, they just go away. Um, So the ones that can't, um, they suffer an impact. But then just like any other environmental impact, they, they recover. So I think that the main thing that we need to do is we, and this is what we do here at the BEG, is we need to get really good at monitoring these sites so that we know before that happens. And that's why we monitor the deep reservoir as well as the environment. So hopefully we could see something going on in the reservoir first. We could stop the injection and we could mitigate these effects before they even get to the environment.
0: Right. And that's, let's talk a little bit about that. Take our listeners down this path. Uh, what we're describing here is a subsurface uh, formation into which this CO2 will be injected. Uh, as I think Dr. Havorka told us, about 10,000 feet, could be 5,000 to 10,000 feet down. This is deep down. Uh, the monitoring protocols that you administer and develop, uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that, but basically, I assume you're looking for a, a change in the concentration of CO2 in the layers above your cell essentially right that's kind of what we're doing so you can see it coming let's say that you see a problem that what are the corrective action uh action uh options for like let's say you find out we got a leak that's a a plugged well didn't work out something's leaking that something happened what do you do
1: so basically what we believe is that that's going to be a plumbing problem most most likely leakage scenarios are wells hmm, okay and so that is literally a plumbing problem like you you find some you get up in the morning and you go downstairs to make your coffee and you see water on the floor and you're like oh darn you know you it's happened. yeah you 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 call your plumber <laughs> my
2: day has changed <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> it's not fun gonna and be late for work exactly it's not fun you don't like it it's expensive But we can, you know, first of all, what we can do is we can go in and we can just do a survey of these wells. First of all, make sure they have integrity before we go storing CO2. Well,
2: can we talk about, I want to touch on that quickly. Yeah. Which is, I mean, like you said, we've been drilling wells for 100 years now. I mean, this is, we've been doing it. What, how well are these mapped? Uh, Do we know where all of them are? I mean, uh, is this, are we able to account for all of our little, you know, in little. The abandoned well. Yeah, yeah. well, but yeah, pr- precisely. Wells that are no longer in service for extraction. They right. might they could, they could be, I, I don't know, 50 years down the road. We haven't thought about them for a long time. Right. Um, are we, how do we account for those?
1: Yeah, no, that's something that we need to put some effort into, a- absolutely. Um, and I'm not, I'm not familiar with that in the offshore environment as much as I am on the onshore. Um, but yeah, they're not always, uh, many times they're uh, cut off beneath the surface and then they're covered over. But we've actually been involved as well in an aerial survey where we would fly over with a magnetic um, device, and then we could plot where all of they, hmm. where all of them are. And but there's a lot of them, so that's expensive to to go in and try to make sure that they're all okay.
0: Yeah. So the magnetometer surveys are going to detect the ca- the whale the casings. casings right. These things are, and the plumbing issue you talked about. And this is a little bit. I think it's okay to take our audience down this path a little bit on 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 how. Uh, wells are cased and w- w- how they're separated from more porous formations and all this. Of course, we do this for oil and gas all the time. That When they're pulling gas out of the ground, they don't want it slipping out of the well hole and into a formation. So they're pretty good about this because it's this how you make money. Yeah. But tell us about that technology. Can you a little... I, <laughs> all right. I, I, you're like, you're, I really, don't not, to talk you're really
1: getting out of my
0: expertise area. But <laughs> we will, uh, we but
1: but no, you're right about that. And and actually, I, I just in my own personal opinion, I just think, you know, basically we need to if we have a regulation, we need to make sure that it's, you know, enforced. And so we need to just really make sure because because in my opinion, it's the drilling and the wells that need to, we need to take care in that. We can't allow, because that's like what happened at Aliso Canyon. All of these all of these things where wells blow out, you know, it's basically, in my opinion, people just not being careful enough. So right. we just need to really be careful about True that. True on the
0: BP horizon absolutely yeah. was a management decision that yeah. led to that disaster. Not very technically manageable well, yes. but uh, they, they didn't put enough plugs in and they cut cut the time short and i didn't let the well set and uh, all of that but let's let's talk about um let's talk about the the um, the magnitude of this effort in terms of how it could succeed as a strategy on climate change uh we we i think for the purpose of the discussion we're talking about co2 emissions there's methane emissions there's other greenhouse gases but we're talking about co2 here uh I've tried to look this up. The emission numbers are around 130 million tons a year, I human-caused. Uh, I think that's – is that – I mean, there's a big number here annually right. produced. So my kind of common-sense question is, how much of this stuff could we take out of the flue gas streams or other – things and put into the ground what's the magnitude of this effort yes uh, that's such eventually. a eventually i mean i, I know that not, not right now but as you, what you're shooting for yeah. yeah
1: yeah this is such an important question and it just brings all kinds of things flooding into my mind how to answer that but um you know as you wish <laughs> here we go yeah. Yeah.
2: however you want to do it
1: so Okay, the International Energy Agency does all the modeling for this, does all of the scenarios, and and figures out, you know, how much do we need to keep from putting in the atmosphere? And from a CCS standpoint, the upscaling that is needed right now in order to get our climate emissions reductions targets is staggering. So the IEA says that... I believe now it's something like 15% of the emissions reductions needs to come from carbon capture and storage. Wow. And that is, what that looks like is, so, so I, I mentioned that we've been studying this for about 20 years here at the Gulf Coast Carbon Center. There's been about 20 years of CCS research. And in that 20 years, we stored less than a gigaton about a gigaton, which don't even ask me what a gigaton is. I, I believe it's like a million,
2: yeah.
1: it's a billion tons is or it something. It's a million, million? It's, million, or it's like it... a billion, yeah, it's a million, million. It's, it's just way out there. It's so much, it's like geology. It's hard to understand yeah. the scale. Yeah, it's um, a big number. It's a huge number. And, and so, so in the 20 years that we've done it, we stored about a gigaton. Okay. Okay. Now, the IEA says that by 2050... We need to store 94 gigatons. And uh, I have, okay. I mean, it's... That's a good,
0: that gives me a sense. because it's about, we've done one... Two per- orders
1: of magnitude.
0: Okay, right. Two orders of magnitude. And in 20 greater.
1: years, we did one. And in the next 30, we're supposed to do that again by two orders of magnitude.
0: Well, and let, but we haven't been trying that hard, maybe. Uh, we haven't put on the full court press on this. Right. Um, and, and, and this is something I want the listeners to understand, too, is is carbon uh, injection is a technology and it is a technique uh for oil recovery it is part of it's used by the oil and gas industry to to get to change the viscosity of the oil make it more fluid get it to the surface and so this is something that's been done for the purposes of of enhanced oil recovery for a long time what's new here is is the purpose of this effort and that you're going uh, not to get more oil here, but to put the carbon down there and let it stay down there. Um, is how does that how does that relationship between our experience in CO two sequestration versus or enhanced oil cover how was that discussed? Because BEG is a big oil and gas in, research institute as well. I mean, this is, right. this is so t- tell us about the dynamics of that issue.
1: It's so interesting. It's it's really interesting because we look at CO2 as a waste product, right? But it's actually a commodity in a lot of ways because we use CO2. We use it to carbonate drinks. We use it to take the caffeine out of our coffee. I mean, we use it in so many different ways. But what's interesting about, what's so interesting about CO2 EOR is that okay. What's EOR? Uh enhanced oil recovery. Okay. CO two enhanced. Thank you for keeping me on yeah. track with yeah, my we'll, we'll yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're good at that. So so the CO two enhanced oil recovery, those companies pay a lot of money for that CO two, right? Hmm. And they actually since yeah. nineteen seventy Really. How yeah. did they get yeah, yes. I didn't think of that. Yes. Yeah, where do they get it from? Yeah. So since nineteen They do. But you know where they're getting it from? They mine it from natural geologic subsurface domes. Wow. So like in in California, I mean, um, in Colorado, there's large underground deposits of natural CO2. Wow. and they mine this natural CO2, and they have a big pipeline that takes it all the way down to the Permian Basin where CO2 EOR has been going on since 1972, okay? So what they do is they put it in the oil reservoir, and they, it, like you said, it gets more oil out. This is depleted reservoirs where if you just if you didn't use the CO2, you couldn't get it out. But what's so interesting about that is that that CO2 stays down there. Well, wouldn't they rather just bring the CO2 up with the oil and then just recirculate it? Instead, they have to buy so much CO2 because it just wants to stay down there. At the Sacrock oil field, where they've been doing this since 1972, 50% of the CO2 that they have injected stays there. It wants to sequester itself. It wants to stay there, so that's the other. That's the other issue to safety is that there are so many ways that that CO two over time traps is trapped under there. It dissolves. It mineralizes. It you just can't get it up even if you wanted to. So it stays down there.
2: It's really interesting, and um, I mean, one of the interesting things that we were talking with. I mean, this this gets at kind of one of the. The fascinating theory of change uh, parts of the discussion um, which is that we have of course this crisis to get the, the carbon uh, out of the atmosphere back into the planet that is clear that we need to do that um, this is of course uh, there's all sorts of natural ways that uh, people talk about you know marshes and uh, trees, and of course those are all important. I understand you're not saying that we don't need to n- not do those things, but this is for the scale, for the, the you know, exactly to, to meet these goals that the international climate scientists outline there. Right. Um, we're going to need to do some pretty dramatic pumping of this stuff down, yes. and uh, but in so you know this there's, there's a tax credit now in the in there the current is. in the and of course part of the tax credit is pumping co2 down for enhanced oil recovery which seemed you know when we read that we got a little we i'm against it <laughs>
1: okay good <laughs> I, thank I, I you am. i'm like okay, yeah, this I, is good this is I a good like, conversation
0: i like the 50 dollars per ton as i think is the tax credit for sequestration right 35 bucks a ton if you're producing oil uh, the net i know that the depleted field you're going to pump it down there if you looked at the life history of the formation Uh, It's a net carbon negative. I get that. That's like a 30, 50-year analysis or 100 years or something like that because you're going to burn more and produce more CO2. I just think that you don't get money, a tax credit, in my opinion. I'm I'm against it. I think they try to go straight 50, uh, 50 bucks per ton um, because – What we're trying to do here with this policy, at least I think what we are trying to do here, is to encourage people to act in a different way and to help solve this problem. And I guess that's my personal opinion. Well, thank
1: (laughs) you so much for saying that. And you know what? You're not alone. A lot of people have that opinion. But what you have to realize is that, okay, first of all, now I said that the oil companies are mining CO2 out of the ground. So they might as well, if they're going to do this thing, they might as well take the anthropogenic, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning man-made. Did right. I do good? I didn't, you did. I didn't say that big. That's front. a good <laughs> word. <laughs> um, but anyway, so but also you have to remember is, it's the oil companies right now that have the subsurface engineering expertise. So they're the ones that can go in and go, yeah, a well, right? Yeah, bam, right there it is. Let's just do it. And what we're seeing now, which is really exciting about the the forty five Q, is that because of that fifty dollar. Um, uh, for brine storage, yeah, the oil companies are saying, okay, we want to find some stacked storage. And so what stacked mm. storage is is that you may have an oil reservoir at a certain level within the subsurface, right. but then you may have a, another um, great, target for uh, brine storage as well. So we're looking at stacking it in the geologic uh, r- reservoir. And so they're looking now at not only doing the EOR, but also doing the brine. Got so it. so what I think about EOR right now is, yes, of course, fossil fuels will have to be phased out. Um, and oil companies know this. And But right now, they're the ones that can implement this. And if and, and until we have regulation and policy that um, gives us an economic reason to store CO2, it's not going to happen. Right now, if yep. an oil company can make some money, a little bit of money, um, then then that's the low-hanging fruit to get this technology off the ground.
2: And this is where I want to just pause and say this is that theory of change thing. Because, um, you know, a good portion of our audience are as green as they come when it comes. These are environmental Uh, advocates who have dedicated their lives to coastal and ocean health and they look at uh, the oil and gas industry we'll call it the energy industry right as being the uh, I'm I'm not gonna say they think they view them as being the cause but I mean let's be real that uh, there was they have pumped this carbon out and now we the public are going to um, subsidize them to put it back in is that really what we got to do And I, I, now here that's the one argument that, that's kind of an extreme argument I'm now going to articulate the other one which is this does not you don't just snap your fingers and create the change that we need to have and um, in order for us to make the uh, objectives and actually start start taking uh, carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the planet so that we can manage climate change better Uh, We're going to need the uh, infrastructure, the existing infrastructure and expertise that uh, these guys have been using to take it out. And it is a really uh, bizarre thing to say that. And I'm trying to think if I can think of another thing in history, like another example in history where uh, this has happened. Maybe you have thought of one, but um, it is weird. But I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm a millennial. Okay, so I'm going to be saddled with the consequences of doing this or not um and hopefully we all will if if we uh if we are long lived um and uh i just really want to uh see action being taken i do i i think that it's important that we recognize that it's weird to pay the uh, energy companies to do this um but it's an intermediary step, I think.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is one of the most important aspects of what's going on right now. I'm so glad you brought it up because, yes, I am so grateful for these for passionate people that really want to get this climate problem solved. I mean, we need that. And you're right. And thank you for bringing it up because it is weird. It it feels weird. Why should, you know, oil, it's like oil companies are the reason for the problem. But you, you articulate this brilliantly. And I want to make this point because first of all, fossil fuel reserves are finite. Okay. They are finite. So we won't be using them forever, even if we wanted to, but the phase out is important. And what you have to realize also is that oil and gas companies, many of them are actually putting a lot of money into developing the capture technology. So they're actually helping in a lot of ways to yeah. get this technology going. But what I want to really make clear is is this. There are a lot of these people that are very passionate about the climate and you're one of them. And however, the problem here is that we cannot get we cannot shut off fossil fuels immediately we just can't do it we rely on them all the time and so the problem is there are a lot of these people that do not want carbon capture and storage because they don't want to enable the fossil fuel industry. And what I feel that is that is doing is it's stopping us from mitigating the fossil fuels that we do have right now. We need both. We need, we need carbon capture and storage now until we can get rid of the fossil fuels because it isn't going to happen overnight. Renewables cannot solve our problem right now. And so in this transformation, phase, we really need to stop the polarization that's going on and we need to all come together and we need to realize that we need all of these solutions because when you understand the magnitude of the problem, there are people in developing countries, if we say no coal right now, yeah, that basically says, okay, we have our energy, we're fine, but we're not going to let coal help you guys over in developing countries who does, don't have the electricity. It's a human rights issue. And so what well, we Need to realize is we are transitioning and we need cap- carbon capture and storage until that transition
0: happens that's really persuasively said. i i think even the stacked storage idea uh when i start to think about in the process of producing more oil and gas resources which is the very high cost of drilling and putting the risks that these guys do billions millions of dollars i mean certainly uh and as a part of that, we start to integrate sequestration of carbon or brine wastewater, and you start to do a more complex thing in the process of oil and gas. I think that's a sensible. We're talking about pragmatism here, really. Um, it's not that we, I, I think we are all moving past, at least uh, moving past the idea that there's a good guy, bad guy situation here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be up in Dallas at EarthX uh, in a couple weeks. EarthX is, uh, is really a South by Southwest for the environment. It's underwritten by Trammell Crow. There's a, there's a whole EarthX energy deal. This is an annual event. It's, and there's an OceanX, of course. There's for... OceanX. There's 5,000. I mean, this is an amazing thing. You guys should go talk there. But, but I can tell you that in interviewing uh, the director, the CEO of that event, Tony Keen. Tony Keane, he is very much in line with the thinking and, and sounded similar to you. Which is that you have to really move into the notion that you're going to work together with all of the players. They ha the solution has to go down this path, love it or not. Yeah. This is what we're going to do. And to put carbon in the ground, we've got to go to the oil and gas guys because guess what? They're the ones who know how to do it, and we don't.
1: Absolutely, and and um, I mean, I mean, I've walked into a side event, which is a kind of a United Nations. Um, at these Conference of the Parties, the UNFCCC Cops, I've walked into a large side event to hear someone at the podium saying, CCS is a unicorn technology. It doesn't exist. It's not proven, and it doesn't work. And I get so frustrated by that because it's almost like um, maybe people don't want it to work or something, or they're uneducated, and they're going around (coughs) spreading this. We we've been working on it for 20 years. It works. It's not complex And right now it is so critical that we keep it out of the atmosphere. My goodness We cannot get the polar ice caps back, right? Right. We can stop oil and gas whenever we you know Whenever we can get there But we cannot bring back all of the things that are happening right now because we're putting the co2 in the atmosphere
2: Hmm. so, uh, of course when you're studying the uh, monitoring uh, aspects of this and we're thinking here if if, if we're going to do this right we're going to go down this road uh, this road of cooperation and uh, sing kumbaya with the energy companies and we're going to go down we're going to do that and we're also going to get the coastal communities who will be um, on the front lines of this and this mm-hmm. is going to be what I'm saying is we're going to scale this baby up I mean in order yes. to do this at a uh, at a large enough scale in order to have an impact to meet the goal that you mentioned earlier Um, we are going to have to really scale this up. So when you're looking at that from a risk mitigation, I, I mean, we're not talking about monitoring one site or five sites. We're talking about having an ongoing active program where we are doing this. I don't know how much. How many sites are we talking about? I mean, like, what does the ramp up look like from a risk perspective?
1: So, well, that's what we do here. So we started with, um, well, Sue started with a very small injection of CO2, a few tens of tons, and then, and then we did the, we monitored the Cranfield project, the U.S. Department of Energy Cranfield project, which was the first um, project to reach a million metric tons per year. And what we did then was we threw every single monitoring technology we could think of, we threw everything we had at it. And we then, what we did was we selected which ones were um, were the best ones, and so then, what we did was we went to two other large sites, one of them right now is the largest site in the world right now. And now what we're doing is optimizing these techniques for upscaling. So we are very much aware of the upscaling that is needed, and so that is one of the main things we do here is we are optimizing. This technology, this monitoring technology, and we're getting it down so that we know how to do this thing and we could do it over and over and over again and it works. Right. So So let's let's throw
0: some numbers around because in reading about the topic and really from in the financial papers and and some of the folks who are looking at the uh, IRS 45Q tax credit and the investor opportunities there. The the numbers that I've read about, and this is not this is not from the science side of it. It's really from the investor side. The potential value of the credits available. I, I've read fifty million tons a year is a good target number that could be uh, shot for a hundred million tons a year. Are those numbers frightening to you? Do you think that we know enough about this and have enough sites to? To even think about fifty million tons of carbon sequestration a year, or a hundred million—is that are, we, are these guys out of their mind, or what do you no, think?
1: No, not at all. I mean. First of all, we know that we have the pore space. So we've done that assessment. We know that there is enough pore space. And by the way, it's not a cavern. Right. It's just small little pores underneath. the Yeah. The, yeah. Sue schooled us. Something. She did. She, <laughs> okay. She's like,
0: it's not a bat cave. Okay.
1: But that's that's fine. That's fine. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, we know that we have the pore space, and again, it's 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 a um. It's a ramp up. Right. So mm-hmm. we again, that's why I gave you the um, that's why I gave you that example of we started with a 10 and then right. we went to 100,000. and the, So we're, we're a
0: million. Yeah.
1: So so far, so good. You know, we need to start we need to just implement this thing. Bottom line.
0: Mm-hmm. OK. And let's let's I want to this is a topic that you mentioned in the lead up to the discussion. I want to talk about the International Panel on Climate Change. You mentioned the United Nations. uh there's a strategy here, an international strategy uh, to address climate change, uh, which is I, I'm, I'm not going to say this is like, how does it feel to work on a hoax every day? Never mind. Um, <laughs> Interview's because we're, we're, yeah, we're way <laughs> past that point. But the international panel on climate change. Talk to us about what how what you're working on i'm very interested in the international nature of this and who are you working with around the world and what do you try how do you connect to the ipcc
1: oh my gosh it's such a cool story really um so, well, the way that we connect is in the environmental impacts of, of carbon capture and storage. So um, it started with the 2005 IPCC report on carbon capture and storage as a potential mitigation option for, you know, for climate change. And, um, uh, and so it was kind of coming on the scene. CCS was coming on the scene then. There were um, two countries that put in applications for doing carbon capture and storage um, under in developing countries under something called the Clean Development Mechanism, which was a mechanism that would stimulate developing countries to be able to start their low-carbon development, to, to institute these low-carbon technologies. And at that time, uh, there was no modalities and procedures. No, They didn't know what to do with that. So that's when um, these greenhouse gas inventories came out in 2006, where it's like, okay, so if we're going to mitigate the emissions from countries, we need to take inventories, right? We need to see how much are you emitting now? How much are you not emitting? We need a way of doing that.
0: What's the trend? All of
1: yeah. And there. how do we actually do the numbers? Because the numbers are big. Huh. So carbon capture and storage was different, okay, because every site is different. You couldn't put what they call an emissions factor. So if you can take like certain technologies, they'd say, okay, just put this factor to that, and then that's how you do the inventory. But it couldn't be done like that for carbon capture and storage because Mm. it's so different. What if it leaks? What if it doesn't leak? You know, there's just not something you can just put a factor to.
0: And all of this discussion that you're describing was, I take it for the purposes of trying to hit certain targets that the IPCC had set out, like, boy, we yes. need to reduce the CO2 parts per million in the air. We need we don't want to go over 400 or 450 or whatever it is, and we need to carve this down a little bit. But let me ask you this, in the, I'm kind of curious, and this is really, boy, a, kind of a squirrely subsection of this, but what I'm thinking about here, does it really matter where it happens? Why does the geography of the country, other than a, an assignment of responsibility, mean anything? Because... If we captured it all on the Texas coast, and we did it for the whole world, it's the same effect. We don't have to do it in Nigeria. We don't, you know. I mean, no. how does this play? It's, cause, like-
1: it's basically because we don't want another China or India.
0: Okay. I mean, we want if, if so developing so you want to drive them to drive in, incentivize a more carbon negative or carbon neutral economy. Is yeah, it's almost like
1: easier to not do it in the first place than to fix it later. So if these developing countries are going to develop, let's go ahead and stimulate the you know more okay. sustainable development so that we don't get to this place where we can't deal with it. Um, but anyway, so what happened then was so for many years in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of the Parties. I'm going to say that because um, you can call it the COPS. And so I don't want that to be misconstrued. No, that could be easily not climate, misconstrued. Not the climate cops. It's uh, it's the conference of the parties meeting. But there were very there were a lot of clever negotiators and policymakers in the in the UNFCCC that said, okay, how are we going to deal with this? We need to, you know, if, if CCS is going to be recognized on the United Nations, we need a set of modalities and procedures for how to deal with this technology. And they worked on this for years and years and years until 2010 in Cancun when they um, said, okay, this is, we're going to, we're going to get this figured out once and for all. And the host was Cancun and they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to figure out this now. Are we going to have CCS modalities and procedures or not? And, and, and at that time they said yes we are but there are some technical issues that need to be resolved and that is long term liability what if a site leaks who's going to be in the long term liable for that and the second is what are the safety issues around it is it safe and how do we know what the environmental impacts would be so there was a uh, meeting a UNFCCC technical meeting called just for this reason and to address these issues, and that's when the Bureau of Economic Geology was brought into this whole scene because of our expertise in environmental monitoring, we were asked to come and present at that meeting and to you know give information on what we knew from a technical standpoint. So we did that. Um, it was successful. Supposedly, it answered a lot of people's questions. And then at the so that was in I believe October, and then the COP in Durban was in December. In, in Durban, South Africa.
0: 2006, this right? would be
1: twenty eleven now. 2011. This is how long this debate went on. This okay. is how long that people were talking about it when they finally said we gotta we gotta figure this out once once and for all. And then so we were asked to come back to the COP in Durban to just before the vote to give that information again to policymakers because that's what these side events are for, to give policymakers technical information. And it uh, and it went through. And in 2011, CCS was recognized as a technology under the United Nations.
0: Okay, that's an incredible. That is a great story. And you know what I love about that is, you know, as a as a geochemist and all of these high powered scientists that are around here, you guys end up in deep policy discuss- discussions and governing and working with the UN. And this is what I love about kind of the coastal issues. You almost can't separate the science from our public institutions and how we react to these kind of problems and I'm just this I'm just curious. I mean, did you ever think you would be speaking before an international panel in Durban, South Africa when you became a monitor for carbon sequestration? Okay. I guess think that's amazing.
1: Okay, if I'm really 100% honest here, no. I had been a mom, you know, <laughs> taking my kids to soccer practice before that. And I walked in, I literally walked into this United Nations meeting in Abu Dhabi, which first of all, I'd never been to Abu Dhabi. And there was the insignia of the United Nations there. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I wanted to turn around and go the other way. But uh, no, I mean, it's all it's just about, you know, uh, it's about growing where you're planted and and trying to make a difference wherever you find yourself. and, And so... Yeah, that's what we want to do here.
2: Well, one thing's for certain in learning this history is that um, this has been, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do the stupid pun, but I just can't help it. But this has been bubbling under the surface for quite some time, <laughs> um, and you know, I think it's reached a point of activation now. And you know, here's the other side of this, uh, Catherine, is that um, this work that that was going on uh, internationally and uh, that going back to to 2004, that work was being done at an at an elite government kind of big level policy le- level. Um, this was at a time when I mean I remember the political discussions about climate change in those days, and there was open denial, the the kind of open denial then that it was it was almost more people just did not uh, were not anticipating the kind of. Uh, Impacts of climate change that whereas today and I mean this is just my personal observation I'm not citing survey data or I'm not measuring public opinion but we follow news stories mm-hmm. from around the American shoreline and we talk to a lot of people and like every one of them top of their mind is climate change sea level rise what the effects are going to be and what we're going to do about it so there's been a change there and Mm. uh that was not the way it was in 2004 2005 2010 2011 like just was not that way and now it's it's moving and i think we're going to start seeing especially with this uh tax credit in the united states i'm i'm curious to know we'll we'll check in here in just a second about what's going on internationally i do want to um touch that but um You know, as we scale up, one of the things that uh, our listeners are particularly interested in is that uh, we understand that you know the the primary storage uh, sites that you've identified are old ancient beaches, and um, they're offshore. And that means that the drilling will either happen offshore or it will happen onshore and you'll go mm-hmm. uh, directionally it, directionally. Yep. And that's a major facility that will, will be on the shoreline in some yeah. place. It will actually right. be there. It's going to be a physical thing. And there I understand we'll have pipelines probably right. leading to those things. Mm-hmm. And those I, I imagine some of them are, are, will use existing pipelines. But in some cases we're going to have to build new stuff. Um, that this is a lot of construction. This is a lot of change that um, we can all we're going to be facing now. Yeah. From a risk perspective, like this is a whole system of of, of industry that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sure our listeners are curious about the the risks of that and how you how would you address them? What would you say to the the people of the American Shoreline on this?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say. Um, That's your resource and you, you know, you should be involved. I mean, I say, I say be involved with, with um, educating yourself, um, being involved in making sure that the process is, is um, happening in the way that's okay for you. And, again, it's it's that same thing. We need to all work together. So for us here, we're very concerned about stakeholders and their, um, their concerns. And so we do a lot of work to make sure that we listen and, uh, you know, put, take into consideration um, stakeholders' opinions. And we want to bring you into the project. And we want to, I mean, at least in the terrestrial uh, way, come on help us monitor this thing right you're there let's work together again it's a work together thing because we it's again it's a balancing thing as well yeah I mean if I was living closer to the coast I would be all over that because it's gorgeous it's beautiful it's uh, you know it's a place that you want to um, protect and we're balancing the technology and the infrastructure and the industry with the devastation that we are going to see of our coasts because of climate change, right. because of the, the the storms and the sea level rise. I mean, yeah. we just unfortunately, we're you know, we're in a hard place right now and we need to just balance all this out. That
0: is really perceptive. I think it's very important to keep in mind that we're going to have to take some action. It's going to very likely in this state in any way, be near our coast because of the geologic deposits are there that are the most suitable. I love the fact that Dr. Havorkan names them all. Yeah, she's so good. <laughs> the, the layers. Uh, but let's talk about, this is what I would tell you, but I, I, I would just suggest that I think the discussion is going to be in the way that you're describing. It, can we trust this is the monitoring there? is it believable or is it really okay there's that whole mm-hmm. issue yeah there's a whole other category of things here that deal with the siting of facilities near the shoreline which is not a scientific question really uh, other than the fact that the location is dictated physically by the science but the you know I, this is what I'm what is it going to look like the, you know we, I've seen drilling wigs. I've worked on one two three of them uh, I was roughneck but, I sort of know what the thing is, but I know that that thing is there for nine months or a year and then it's picked up and it's gone and you fix the site. We're talking here about some sort of physical plant that's going to exist as a permanent thing. If we're doing 5 million, 10 million tons a year, what is, I mean, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask you, what does the infrastructure look like? Well, no, I mean, I think, I think it's a
1: well head, you know? I mean, we go to these sites all the time in the terrestrial wet areas. And it's funny because we want to take, like, field trips out to the site, and there's nothing to show. It's a wellhead. <laughs>
2: ah, it really okay, – I, I mean, can it's, see that. it's like – For people who aren't familiar with what a wellhead yeah, looks like, describe it.
1: It's like a stump of a pipe coming out of mm-hmm. the ground
0: Maybe with the with – A couple things on the side a couple, and some connections. Yeah, some valves <laughs> Some and, valves and some connections.
1: Yeah, I mean, the capture um, is on the – industry far yeah Yeah. in another place and then the pipeline comes and
0: got it so the let's say we're taking a power plant flue gas stream and we're going to compress that and we're going to get it to the right place all of the processing of that flue gas is occurring at the generation at 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 the the power plant at the point source it gets into a pipeline it gets shuttled down to the right place and it yeah it could be a wellhead it actually the the plant doesn't it, it doesn't exist on the coast. It exists wherever the point source well, is. Well now there
1: are, as you know, some
0: Yeah, let's talk some about some
1: petroleum this. Uh, refining plants. Yeah. On the Texas coast. <laughs> yeah, so, so oh, but are, Those are
0: sources too, right? Those are sources. Lots of sources. Okay, I got it. So
1: you, got in a way at the Texas coast, the sources are quite close already to oh, the storage.
0: All the refineries, all yeah. those chemical plants, all Texas City, down yep. around Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. down in Brownsville, all these port towns.
1: I mean, I've heard that like if mm. um, if Texas were a country, we'd be the third largest emitter in the world, something like that. Wow. So we yeah. we have the storage and we have the sources. And um, we
0: got you guys. Yeah. We got the brave power. And, you have and we got a bunch of guys who know how to drill <laughs> wells and move things in pipes.
1: And so, I have to tell you, good. we care. We, we definitely care. I believe care. you. Uh,
0: I want to ask you about something I've been reading about re- recently. I, I'm very interested in, in, in the horsepower behind this, the international scientists, the money, who's investing, how much, not in terms of some weird profitability thing but Mm -mm. the the seriousness of this is Mm -hmm. very high already and i've read recently about the uh, open air capture system that was recently demonstrated can you so here you are you're a you're, you're a geologic storage person. <laughs> the rival technology is like, we're going to pull it out of the air. It's not a point. To, how are you feeling about these people? They're going to.
1: I'm <laughs> tell okay us about with their, it. We te- need to all. We need it all. <laughs> well, I'm t- not in a place to be competitive with anybody. I, no. I'm being a
0: little bit facetious, but but help us understand this other thing. Can you describe it a little bit for our oh, readers? Wait. I know it's not your. Yeah, the okay. direct
1: air capture. So, yeah. Well, there's a lot of. Um, Unease right now because we're not making our targets. We're we're nowhere near making our targets. So I think we're really understanding that there's going to be a time that comes where we need negative emissions, and we need we need to we're going to be freaking out and need to do drastic um, drastic actions. And so that's a great idea, you know, capture it out of the air. If we have CCS, we don't put it in to begin with right but but again um that's fine they're going to need storage um even if you capture it out of the atmosphere but you have to realize like in a flue stack there's millions of tons of co2 going out of a and 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 it's not just just so you know also it's not just a coal plant or an electrical plant there's sources like cement plants iron and steel plants there's you know so you've got so much coming out of the stack and it's funny because it's Parts per million. It's 400 parts per million. That's not even percent range in right. the atmosphere. It's funny. It's a weird thing because there's barely any CO2 at all in the air, but it has such a huge effect. Yep. You know, it's 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and just parts per million of CO2. Wow. So, I mean, it. it I can see how it might be difficult to, like, get a lot of, of it out of the air because it's in such small concentrations to begin with. Yeah. But, I mean, bring it on, yeah, right? They can we, do need, it we need any, all hands on deck. We need everything, here. yeah.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think everything is what we're going to need to do, and I think that that's what we're going to see. Um, well, this is our second show doing uh, up, up covering this, and I believe we have a third one cooking, and I, I wanted to circle back to the international community and what's mm-hmm. going on internationally because uh, our final, not, I shouldn't even say final, but our next show on this subject will be a panel, Um, A panel discussion uh, that we will be doing remotely and I understand that we're we're working with Sue to reach out to some folks internationally. I'm not going to drop any names because I don't think I know them, but um, we are going to expand this discussion to uh, to look at the broader international effort to do this, but fill us in what is going on internationally. Are there international sites? Is You mentioned Japan as being mm-hmm. a, a partner here. What's going on in Japan? What's go, What's happening?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, in Japan, they have a really nice demonstration project. the a Makamai project where they have, a, like you said, the directional drilling. So it's the wellhead is on the shore and then there's directional out to um, beneath the seabed and they're storing um, CO2 there. And we've been uh, lucky to... Uh, collaborate with them so we're collaborating my colleague tip Meckel and myself are collaborating on that project but really the you you know so you mentioned earlier as well what's the money that's being put at this well the department of energy the u.s department of energy Mm is a major funder of all of this research in the United States. And then North America right now is the hot spot. So Really? That's oh, yeah. Great. The United States and Canada have, have the biggest projects. Listen,
0: I don't think we should publish the interview if Donald Trump found out that you guys are working on this. I, know. I don't know.
1: We're <laughs> holding strong but here. I,
0: <laughs> but I, I, it, I'm i amazed to hear that. I, oh, I yeah. That the United States is a leader it in is. carbon sequestration technology and, and advancement that... Okay. It is a leader Great. because we can applaud. Yeah. It um, makes me feel good. I
1: think it was 10 years ago they started the carbon sequestration um, partnerships where they um, took the country and they divvied it up into different um, sec- sections. And they started funding these demonstration projects. Number one, go and look at the geology. What is the potential for storage? Number two, start to um, inject and see, you know, if it, if it works. Uh, three, you know, scale up. So, um, so we did that, and we now have the largest CCS site in the world right now in Texas. Do we? Where yeah. is that? It's called the Petronova plant, and it's just southwest of Houston. Okay. And the CO2 is being piped to an enhanced oil recovery field in um, south Texas, and we are doing the monitoring for that. Fantastic. So, cool. So before that was the Boundary Dam project, which is my favorite project. Tell us about it. Um, It's uh, it's funny that it's named Boundary Dam. It's not a hydrological project. It's just that's the name of the power plant because it's near a a dam. Okay. But before the Petronova project, the Boundary Dam project was the first large-scale carbon capture and storage on a coal-fired power plant. When I say large-scale, I mean a million tons per year captured and stored well wow. and on a coal plant it's difficult because the co2 in coming out of the flue gas is a bit of a small percentage i think maybe like 10 percent of wow. this flue gas is wow. co2 so you have to have a technology that will draw that co2 Scrub out it, filter it grab yeah it somehow so um but why I love that, so that was the first one. Then ours was the second one. Is
0: that Texas as well?
1: That's, that's Canada. Oh, that's Canada. Oh, uh, Boundary that's Dam North is in Canada. Okay. That's you know, okay. North America. There you go. North America. And um, I love this project not only because it was the first uh, on a coal-fired pow- power plant, but the guys that run this and that have, have gone through this, they're just passionate and they're brilliant. And they not only have some of that CO2 going to an enhanced oil recovery, but they have some going to brine storage as well. Hmm. And so what they did was they learned so much from doing the capture, doing the first large-scale capture, that they now are applying this at another site, and they have lowered the cost of capture by 60%. Wow, great. And they're going out and they're sharing all of their knowledge and their learnings with um, other countries, because one of the main, you know, holdbacks of CCS has been the price of capture, and so if we can get the price of capture down, then we're we're really ready to go. And
2: capture is actually getting it at the flu right?
1: Yeah, it's actually the point source. The some, point source. Some of these point sources they emit. CO2, so it's really easy. You just take it and put it, you know, down. But in a coal plant, you have to actually separate it. So that's that's the the technological. Lots of other emissions, not yeah,
0: yeah, and wow, this is so. uh, You guys are a little bit like the advent Avengers here for the planet. I I just think there's this community of smart people around the world who are trying to figure out how the hell do we get the CO2 number down. Yeah, Uh, we know we're going to keep putting this stuff out. We know we're not going to be off of fossil fuels in the You know let's just be realistic in the next five decades probably or who knows but you guys are having to figure this out and technologically execute it and also present it to the public in a way that you just it doesn't fall apart yeah politically i mean what a job
1: well can i it is. It is. <laughs>
2: what do you want to
0: say?
1: I, I, d- I don't want to leave Norway out. We kind of oh, went yeah, away no.
0: from Keep the going. Oh,
2: let's, let's talk about <laughs> Norway. <laughs> no, 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 no. We love Norway. You
1: know, I just want to make sure, you know, all of it's my colleagues say. It's not about It's not all about North America. Norway is very big. They're, they've been doing it longer than anybody in the world, so they, they oh, had good. the Sleipner and the Snowvit and all that, and now they're developing another one, so I didn't want to leave them okay. out Are and have them say, plants? how could you not mention us?
2: Are these uh, power plants that you're referencing?
1: Um, these are um, geologic storage sites, so th- okay. in the North Sea. Oh, really? And they've been, um, they've been storing for a very long time, and they, they have the quintessential um, geologic seismic um, image of showing like years and years and years. It's really cool. You should look it up. It shows the you can actually see the CO two just being stored in all the little baffles of wow. the of the overburden. It's it's you can image it. It's right there, and they've been doing it forever. And they yeah. and they're really and their government is very very committed to okay to doing this. So it's it's really so governments
0: Canada, U S, Japan, Norway. Norway. Who else is on the top of your list of favorite? Yeah, know, people working on.
1: Um, the... those are the those top. are them. We've got one in Brazil that's really cool. Um, um, that's very deep water. Oh, really? And that's just because the government said you, it, when, they, um, when they do their uh, energy extraction in Brazil, a lot of CO2 comes out with the energy, and they're just not allowed to emit it. They, the, the government said you may not do really? that, and so they put it back in. Oh, really? So we're putting it back where they that got it. That
0: seems like a good rule. We should have that rule.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so And then there's some other ones in Australia and China. And uh, yeah, and then Abu Dhabi. So well, the whole world's getting on board.
0: Dr. Katherine Romanak, yes, uh, here at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, uh, fixing to go camping. Fixing to go camp I'm and going so camping. Going camping. Gonna wrap this up. She's <laughs> telling us she's sixty-hour weeks for a long time here, and gonna take a break and go camp and not think about carbon sequestration. Probably, I hope. No, so except it's
1: supposed to be really hot. <laughs> 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 so, I have to go swimming
0: but uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on and to continue this really important conversation. And we really would uh, like to continue. I think Tyler's working very closely with Emily on this panel. Uh, there's a lot to learn here and understand and uh, we're very interested and we think it's absolutely critical work. So
1: thank, thank you so much for bringing this to the end of the discussion. Really appreciate, appreciate you guys.
0: Glad to have you on the American shoreline podcast and all you folks out there. Remember coastalnewstoday.com. please sign up and be a subscriber. Uh, uh, find uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Google Pods, Apple Pods, Spotify, and boy, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You and uh, join us and uh, keep up with the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.
2: Pearls on the lawn, at dawn, singing